0: You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one-woman mission to save UK manufacturing. In 2008, I gave up my 20-year career as a fashion buyer because I was disillusioned with how much was being sourced overseas and I set out to uncover some of the amazing businesses that are still making in the UK. Since founding Make It British, I've discovered that there is not only still tons of manufacturing taking place in Britain, but that it's a thriving industry. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be chatting to inspiring British-made brands and UK manufacturers and offering advice to product-based businesses that make in the UK. So with no further ado, let's get on with the show. welcome to episode number 246 of the Make It British podcast. I have got a special treat for you all. I have got with me today two people that have been involved in the publishing of this amazing book called Made in London. So if you haven't heard about it, it showcases 50 of the capital's best factories and workshops. Apparently there are over 4,000 factories and workshops in the capital. um, And this book has 50 of them in there, which are photographed by Carmel King. And the intro and the book is put together by Mark Brearley, who is a UK manufacturer himself. He owns a factory called k So let me bring in Mark and Carmel. Hello, thank you so much for joining me today, guys.
1: Hi, thanks for having us.
0: Hi. Brilliant. So I'm a massive fan of the book, of course, and it's made me want to get out and see all of these factories because I haven't actually seen all of them. Tell us all, how did the book come about? Whose idea was it? Tell me everything.
2: Well, once upon a time, I worked for the Mayor of London and just over a decade ago, we had some uh, riots in London. We got sent up to Tottenham to find out what was going on and one of the results of that is we started doing an audit of the economy of that area. And we were surprised and uh, pleased to discover how much manufacturing was going on. And ever since, I've been uh, putting together knowledge on that. And I got to a list of 4,000. And then a few years ago, I started uh, collaborating with Carmel. It started actually photographing, asking her to photograph my own factory and other manufacturers in the area we're in, Old Kent Road area, and uh, one thing led to another and, of course, we wanted to do a book. Uh, so here we are.
0: Brilliant. And Carmel, is it the first time before Mark invited you to do this? I mean, photographing factories, it's quite a skill. Is it the first time you'd been out and about and seen these factories?
1: Um, well, about a decade ago, or maybe about eight years ago, I started photographing factories in the area I lived in, Walthamstow. Um, I was really keen to document the creative community there, and that's actually how I met Mark, through his own audits. So I kind of did quite a few, the Black Horse Lady Atelier, God's Own Junkyard, the amazing Electro Signs. You know, there are plenty in, in that borough, and I actually got a grant from Waltham Forest to start documenting what was there. So that led to collaborating with Mark. And as Mark said, we just knew that it would be a good book. So we've always kind of had it on the back burner and just waiting for the right moment to approach a publisher. And that's where we, we approached Merrill last summer.
0: And how did you choose, like you say there's 4,000 factories in London, Mark, which is certainly more than I have on my list. Um, how did you first kind of research and find 4,000 factories? And then how did you pick 50 particular favorites to go in the book?
2: Well, researching is just going out and walking around industrial areas and making notes and spotting what's on the side of vans and various attempts at trawling through the internet, which of course gets you different results every time you try something slightly different and word of mouth and etc. It's just slowly built up this knowledge, and of course it's started from realizing that no one had this knowledge, which. Was a bit disappointing, but also quite an exciting challenge. Like, well, why doesn't anybody know? Uh, so now we do know a lot more. Uh, choosing the ones for the book, well, that was very hard. I mean, it was a it was a decision early on that fifty was a reasonable number. And it, even that makes quite a hefty book. Uh, but as soon as we started trying to think, okay, we want a range of. Uh, types to show range of sizes of business and a good spread across the geography of London. Then suddenly fifty was really hard to narrow it down to. Uh, so it wasn't easy, but we we just kind of uh, came up with lists and uh, and then Carmel was the one who got the job of contacting them and asking them if she could come and visit and photograph. Uh, and that of course led to other consequences because lots didn't reply or I
0: was going to say yeah.
2: Or, so,
0: weren't there any that just said, it's going to shove off, I don't want you in your fa- in my factory with your camera?
1: Well, one that we were really keen on was Ford. Um, and they were actually incredibly encouraging and loved the idea of the book, but access was very difficult and they're actually moving over to kind of making electric vehicles. So, I think they just thought, they thought the timing wasn't right, but that would have been a great one, as obviously it's been here, one of the longest, and, and it is the biggest.
0: Yeah, and I grew up near Rainham, so I remember the Ford factory when I was a kid in Romford. Like, everyone had a Ford, because it was the done thing. So that's a shame, but maybe that's for volume two.
1: Absolutely. And you did say best in your intro, and I will absolutely just reiterate that, you know, the 50 that we chose are very much not the best. Just as Mark said, we wanted a really good cross-section and wanted to try and have one in every borough, at least one in every borough, so it was a good spread.
0: Yeah, because you've got everything in there from, um, you know, the shoemakers and um, people that make beer and cars and paint. And the glass eye factory, actually, I think was the probably the one that I was most amazed at. Um, incredible. I didn't know there was anyone that made glass eyes in London. And, you know, what did stand out to me about um, a lot of these factories, and particularly like people like the glass eye chap, is it shows – that some of these people have been doing this for so long and what's going to happen when he is no longer around? I mean, did did this occur to you as you were visiting places about the fact that um, it's almost like a dying tradition, Mark? I know you, you know, particularly there's a quote that you said in the book, which I loved, which was, um, and I don't have the exact words that you said, but it was about the fact that we should be proud of the manufacturing that happens in London. And it's a real shame that... um, it, we've lost some of that over the last few years. So, um, you know, was that something that was apparent to you about how manufacturing is on in the decline in London or do you think it's growing again?
2: I think it's growing again, but it, it's, it, it's changing. I mean, there's very few... You mentioned Tate and Lyle uh, an amazing example of a big process plant. Well, that's not the future of London manufacturing. There's been a dramatic decline of those kind of big process plants But but the niche, the more niche and specialist and almost all of it smaller scale stuff uh, seems to be going through a bit of a renaissance at the moment. Some sectors, for example, garments and a lot of craft-based businesses that add up to quite a lot across many, many small businesses, they're really flourishing again. Uh, So no, I think overall it isn't declining, but certainly there's always that worry about Uh, very niche skills being lost, Uh, and it's a genuine worry. There's always succession challenges, but I I have been hearing that for many decades, and I'm sure people have been worrying about that going back into the 19th century, about skills dying out, and most of them somehow don't die out. They survive.
0: That is so true. I mean, you yourself own a manufacturing company. Do you want to tell everyone a little bit about how that came about as well? Because I love that story, because that's not your background, is it? What was your background originally, and why did you end up buying a manufacturing company?
2: Well, I'm an architect and urbanist, uh, so I'm very interested in how cities work and what goes on in places, uh, but it, it wasn't my job. But when I worked for the mayor, and I mentioned that story of getting getting a list together and researching I decided to get my wife some uh, she had a birthday coming and I thought I'll get her 50 things made in London and and one of them was a tray, so I said oh let's get in touch with them and the proprietor said oh come and visit the factory so we both went along to the factory and a few months later he emailed me and said oh I'm I'm thinking of packing it in Uh, so then it became a a two-family business. We took on the business. Uh, and so that's how we've... <laughs> that's what happened from 2013. Uh, we've been uh, driving it forward uh, with, I suppose, a, a different momentum.
0: Yeah, I love uh, the fact... I could see myself doing that. I, I often walk into factories and think, I wish I owned a factory. I love the fact that you just went and got one. <laughs>
2: it's, it's surprisingly, it's surprisingly common story, actually, of pe- people coming from... different place i mean i think especially in london you get a lot of people who just it happens and they say yeah yeah i'm going to do that Uh, and and they take on often with no background in manufacturing often they do but often with none
1: there's a great story there about the Barbara wilson tap a similar story where jen was looking around because he'd been offered the site as a property site And he was going very much with that hat on. And then I think when he realised the history that was there, that they'd been making taps there for almost 100 years, he just couldn't bear to sort of take it all down and start again and just build some flats. So he's actually taken on the the tap factory now.
0: And that is what's lovely about your book, actually. Rather than just being a photography book, no disrespect, obviously Carmel, because your photographs are beautiful, but you've... You've embellished the photographs by adding in the most amazing text as well that tells the story of each individual manufacturer, I think is so important. In fact, there was a third person involved in in the book, wasn't there? We should probably give credit. Do you want to just name the person who did the, the writing as well so we don't leave her out?
1: Absolutely. So Claire Dowdy, we brought on board to do the writing. We knew that she'd do a great job because she's worked for Monocle, Wallpaper. There used to be a great industry mag as well that she edited. So we knew that she'd be brilliant at sort of sniffing out those stories, interviewing them and writing it up. It's actually quite challenging because I think she just had 300 words had to create very sort of concise stories for each one. But as you said, we were so um, absolutely adamant that we would have the stories there, not just the images, because, you know, every factory's got an incredible story. Um, Many of them are family owned, so there's fifth, sixth, even seventh generation, um, which is amazing.
0: So out of all of them then, if I had to ask you both to pick favourites, which ones would they be? Mark, do you want to go first? Who are your favourite factories in London?
2: Well, it's a bit like asking a parent which is their favourite child. <laughs> of course, they're all the, they're all favourites. Uh, but if I'm allowed to, I'd first of all go with my own. Not just because I'm all proud of it and all of that, but because there's something. I suppose that people who just visit a factory don't realise that it's a very intimate relationship that everyone has with it. You get to know the. The, sa- the sounds, what they all mean, you get to know the smell of it uh, and the, the physicality of it, the way it's arranged. And, of course, the, every, every place of production, as every place of work, is a community. Uh, so it's about the, the people and it's a very human thing. So your own one, you have this very special uh, relationship with. And then if I were to pick one of the other ones, I think I'd probably go for Tate and Lyle, uh, just because what's what's not to like about big process plants? They're <laughs> particularly amazing things. And uh, we have this one in London that remains because of the it's so capital intensive. It would cost hundreds and hundreds of millions to make a new one. So that's why they stay where they are and they've got the river and it all works very, very well for them. But it's an extraordinary machine of production uh, and that's a, an amazing atmosphere in his giant sugar mountain and big machines and lines doing their thing though so, yeah, here i'd choose that one
0: brilliant i thought you were going to say there what's not to like about sugar <laughs> brilliant how about you carmel which are your favorite london factories that you've been to
1: um, well I love the Vinyl Factory in Hayes. It's on the original site of the HMV factory, so there's this amazing sense of history there. Even some of the machines have still got HMV stamped all over them. And the vinyl factory, the kind of more modern incarnation is very much, you know, taking on that history and um, producing vinyl records in very much the same way. You know, they're they're made by steam powered machinery, which in this day and age is incredible to witness. So you see the vinyl puck um, with a paper label, which has been baked so that the paper doesn't have any water in. Um, You see that sort of start off at the beginning of the production line. And then you see, you know, this huge amount of pressure flattens out the puck and it comes out the other end as a kind of flattened 12-inch vinyl, which is just wonderful to see. There's real kind of alchemy there as well because they create the masters in these vats of acid. Um, So just to kind of witness the whole production line and just a really diverse workforce, as with many of the factories in London, you know, brilliant to see women of men of every different heritage. And so I don't know, that just kind of encapsulated a really good London factory that can't meet up, can't meet the demand. You know, they they've got far too much demand to keep up with they um having to put people on huge waiting lists because everyone wants to make records again. And in fact in keeping up with demand
0: and kind of <clears throat> the growth of some of these factories a lot of them are being forced out of London, and you've mentioned that, Mark, like particularly in areas where they want to kind of regenerate, I suppose, and and, and put more houses in. Um, I mean, you have your, yourself have mentioned about KMET and, you know, that you're in an area where potentially, you know, the developers are swooping. Um, it's such a shame. Do you think there's anything we can do to try and reverse that, or is it just inevitable that a lot of factories that are right in the inner kind of zone one and zone two of London will have to start moving out to zones four and five.
2: Well, it's not just about inner London. It's actually all of London that this process is happening. And, yeah, yeah you're right. It's very sad and uh, pretty, pretty brutal often. We, we've, got, we've got four tower cranes have just gone up uh, on the site nearly next door to our factory. So you walk into our yard now and there's four tower cranes busy doing their their thing. So it's pretty uh pretty in your face. Uh, well uh, good planning is the answer. The planning world has been flunking it massively in London, and I think they should be ashamed of themselves. I think it's all layers of government. Uh we 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 see them as uh, the enemy. I mean, I'm afraid it's as simple as that. Government is enemy because of the way that they've uh, either sat by and watched or encouraged this displacement process, and they just needed an attitude change. And of course, that's one of the motivations for doing something like the book. Of course, you want the book to be celebratory because it's it's a marvel that there is this stuff. But there's also this uh, slightly tougher edge. To it, which is saying, come on, everybody, uh, and especially come on, layers of government, come on, local authorities, planning authorities, get your act together, because this is just not right that you would allow step by step destruction of a, a very impressive layer of the economy.
0: Exactly. London would be a much less interesting and colourful place if it didn't have. Like you say, you can wander around and stumble across people that, you know, make umbrellas or make glass eyes. So then the million dollar question is, are you going to cover any other cities? Is the Made in Birmingham coming or Made in Belfast? Uh, Made in Glasgow? Any plans? You've both gone quiet on me, so I'm guessing it was quite a labour of love putting the first book together.
1: No, I mean, I would love to carry on regionally. I think every city's got the story. And I'm actually talking to um, Paul Jacobs, who rescued Ernest um, Ernest Wright, the scissor factory in Sheffield. And we both know that Sheffield's got a fascinating history. So I think there's kind of stories to be told in every corner of the British Isles. It's just working out how you make that archive, whether it's funding or you know more kind of commercial project like a book, that's all up in the air, I guess.
0: <laughs> so did you get funding to produce this book?
1: Merrill very kindly bankrolled this. <laughs> I think Hugh was amazing from the start. His grandfather was a Londoner, so he really believed in this story. And the kind of when I first went to him with the idea, we talked about made in England, made in Britain. Obviously, that would be an obvious story. But I think he really liked um, the idea of just going for London. It was felt like a more succinct story, and that you could go in a bit deeper, whereas a made in Britain would be kind of just touching the surface with
0: a book like that. Yeah, that's true, because so, you'd be picking for th- from thousands.
2: There was a little attempt to raise some sponsorship, which would have been very nice, but we were struck by lack of interest. <laughs> <laughs> that, really? That, that, that uh, strikingness carries on. It's somehow we think, why do all these other things get funny? If, if we were able to package this all as, as culture or art or, uh, or, oh, no, no, this is creative economy... Uh, then it feels like there would be funding. But because it's manufacturing and, dare I say, it, because a lot of it's all a bit working class, it it doesn't seem to uh, be attractive to the, the worlds of funding. And I think that's a whole yes. other story, but it's it really is. frustrating. That's for a whole
0: other episode, Mark. Totally agree. So, were there any London fractures, aside from um, Ford, which you said you would have liked to have cl- include, were there any others that you absolutely love that for whatever reason didn't make the book?
2: A lot. <laughs> yeah.
0: Too many to mention.
1: Dunhill and Waterstones yeah. one that I've wanted to go to for years. I've banged on their door since I started this project about eight years ago. And I think it's partly because they make briar pipes. There's this kind of strange cloak and dagger scene about tobacco, but um, yeah. They, they won't offer
0: it this time, but next time for the next edition. Um, brilliant. Okay, so if people want to find the book, buy the book, where where can they go? Where can they find it, Mark and Carmel?
2: Well, they can, they can go to a Behemoth uh, online uh, bookseller, of course. Not Amazon. Or, or
0: no, 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 or. no, no
2: or another uh, another maybe even more appealing option is uh, it just so happens i set up a little website called london makes so i'm i'm selling i've been selling a few through through that uh,
0: londonmakes.com
2: londonmakes.com
0: okay brilliant
2: i've been doing a little instagram for a few years uh, on uh, madeinlondon.uk so the website just starts to put some of those posts on a website and then selling the uh, book. And, of course, the next step will be, uh, next project, will be uh, trying to get an association of London manufacturers going. So these are the first steps towards that. Oh,
0: that's exciting. Oh, can I help with that? If anything you need need my help on, definitely. Because we
2: could do with a bit more voice
0: yes oh i've got a loud voice (laughs) brilliant carmel one thing i want to ask you before you go my photographs whenever i go and visit factories look rubbish and i'm always saying as well to all of our members make sure you're showcasing the manufacturers that make your products because you can go to their factories and visit them come on give us some top tips how do we take good photographs in factories
1: um, that, is, yeah, I mean, I decided very early on that I was gonna take very little kit and that I couldn't really influence the lighting. And it always amazes me when I turn up and there's these big yellow tungsten light bulbs. You just think, really? People are making things under these day in, day out. So the the light, you know, the light was really tricky and different in every place. So I would take a tripod. So if you can be bothered to take a tripod and do some long exposures, then that's gonna help. Um, And you could just take a little camera flash, although I tended not to use flash. yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I'm used to, that's kind of almost my forte now. I'm used to going into very different conditions and I quickly kind of suss out the light. What's happening? You know, occasionally if you want to get a nice portrait, you might move someone into a doorway or near a window just so you get nice light on them. But of course, in factories, rule number one is you can't stop anyone. You know, they're on the production line and you cannot ask them to stop what they're doing because time is money and they might be being paid, paid per piece. So I did just have to get used to working very quickly and working with, you know, whatever conditions I was given.
0: Yeah, that's so true. When you go into a factory, you don't want to, I have done this before, turn up with a load of lights (laughs) and then it's in everyone's way. And like you say, you don't want to interrupt the actual flow of the production line. So, yeah, you made it sound easy. You've obviously got an amazing camera, though, being a photographer, doesn't (laughs) quite cut
2: it. Yeah, with an Uh, iPhone. Just to chip in at me and cut. Carmel's on, focusing on the technical aspects there, but there's a lot of human to it as well, and Carmel is very good at it. You have to you have to get people to trust you quickly and be sufficiently charming to to get them to carry on doing what they're doing without feeling upset or worried or stressed by somebody taking photos, and that's often really tricky, and you know to. Get shots of what's a human activity uh, without people hiding from you or looking disturbed. Uh, yeah, that, that's a real that knack. Is
0: so true. That is so true, and I love the fact that you're bringing out about the human aspect in all of these places, and that's what I love about manufacturing. You know, you go to a factory, you meet the people and that is what really comes across in your book i think is the people behind the manufacturing in london and it would be such a terrible shame if that we lo- if we lost any of this so thank you to both of you for bringing this book making this book a reality and bringing it out because i hope that it reaches you know a broad cross section of people who can then really appreciate UK Manufacturing and London Manufacturing in particular. So thank you so much for joining me today, both of you. Amazing, Um, you've been absolute superstars. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you for listening to the make it british podcast i make an episode every friday plus there's bonus episodes occasionally many of the interviews that you hear on series four of this podcast are also available to watch on our youtube channel you can find it by going to youtube.com forward slash make it british ltd that's make it british with the letters ltd bye bye